And a very pleasant good afternoon to you. Some blue sky in downtown Vancouver making everything just that much more beautiful. Hope you have a chance to take a look at the North Shore Mountains. But as COVID-19 cases surge right across the province, the B.C. government has delayed the start of the school year. You heard it yesterday and more fallout from that today. Most students will not be going back on January 3rd or 4th as planned. The exceptions, children with special needs and some children of health care workers will be returning all next week, as will some teachers and school staff. They'll be back in the classes on the 3rd and 4th, depending upon the district that you're in. But uh, for most of them, it's a one-week delay until January the 10th, Monday. Cindy Dalglish is the Parent Advisory Council President at Lacole Woodward Hill, and joins us. Thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule, Cindy. Thanks, Bruce, for having me. So what do you make of this one-week delay? Is it going to amount to a hill of beans? Uh, No, I'm glad to see it overall. I think safety needs to be the priority, and I think our districts need to do some work to get standards kind of in a different place than where they are. Um, I am very concerned about the recommendations coming out of the PHO's office as not being substantial enough to support what needs to happen in our districts. Um, you know, what's, for example, what's going to happen when staffing is lacking due to people being off because they've been a close contact or, you know, whatever. And what has happened in the past and continues to happen to this day is that the supports that are there for children with disabilities or additional support needs are pulled first. Um, And that's just not acceptable at all. And it's against everything that uh, talks about accessibility to an equitable access to education. There's, it's uh, really frustrating and we've seen no recommendations coming out of the PHO's office around that. Um, Yeah, Cindy, there seems like there's so much to unpack. And even if you look at uh, one segment of uh, students, those uh, with uh, special needs that require even more, uh, that's just one story. And then there's the story of uh, how they're going to staff things properly for all students, especially when you're told if you have a sniffle or any symptom whatsoever, don't come back into the school. That's well and nice, but who's going to be in there? Who's taking care of uh, students? This must be so much for you to take in right now. Yeah, it really is. We're, I'm confused by the language that's being used. I'm confused by what the plan is if we do have to go into functional shutdowns. And for our listeners, functional meaning not enough staff in the building, uh, so they have to shut the school down. What What is that threshold? We haven't seen what that threshold is, and I don't know if it's district-specific. I don't know if it's a Ministry of Education directive or if it's the PHO's office that gets to decide that. So the the lack of communication on this already is a huge issue. It's not like this couldn't have been seen coming. Um, so I'm hoping that this week that they're going to use can bring that clarification. Um, but I have to go back to the language that's being used right now is healthcare workers, kids can go back to school. Um, okay, great. But does that include like the physio office? Are they considered a healthcare worker? What about the teacher's kids? Where do they go? Can they go back to school? And then if you, you look at children that are special needs, have disabilities, or need the additional supports, 
Um, right now, it's there's so much misinterpretation going around district to district and school to school of what what can we take back in right now, starting for next week. Um, so there needs to be a lot more clarity. Language needs to be consistent. Uh, media is calling it one thing. Um, the ministry is calling it another thing. And the language that's been used up until this point is a completely different one. So uh, it's really, really frustrating not to understand who is welcome next week and who isn't. Um, but this could have all been dealt with and managed if there was actually representation at this steering committee uh, for children with disabilities. That hasn't happened. Uh, I don't see Inclusion BC there. I don't see Family Support Institute there. I don't see BC at Access there. Um, and that's really, really concerning that there's nobody at that table that can speak for the families within within the province that have children with disabilities. And you're quite right, there is mixed messaging with the language, uh, even when it comes to children of whom uh, some of those uh, could be of... Um, uh, essential workers, and that's what we heard initially, and now we're hearing of uh, uh, workers who of healthcare workers. So that's a little bit confusing. Uh, what else are you hearing from parents who are reaching out to you? Are they asking you about uh, your interpretation of the language? Then, yeah, they really are. And of course, our interpretation is that we need clarification. It's it's that we we don't know more than what it actually says. Um, you know, it, it says something about. Students may be able to attend if they are healthcare workers or have exceptional needs. What does "may" mean? We, like you have the language is exceptionally important. Um, from my understanding, is if a child needs additional support needs, they must be given a seat if they so choose for next week. But that's not the language that's being used. So each district and each school can interpret that differently. And that's a really big problem for families that are scrambling right now. Um, I know there's also a lot of concern around exposure notices being so far delayed. Um, And now that we're testing, you know, we're not accepting the uh, rapid testing data, or should I say there's no way to capture that if people are doing it on their own. There's a lot more concern around the exposure of, of Omicron as well. So, you know, I would like to see a mandate for vaccinations for the staff. I would love to see uh, families get up and make sure their children are vaccinated. Uh, We don't have a big enough uptake on the 5 to 12-year-old age for vaccinations, and I think that that's going to start showing in our hospital numbers, and I'm getting really concerned about that. You're quite right when it comes to some of this language. We're very careful in this province using words that are more... Uh, friendly, I guess, like may and recommend, and sometimes it gets in the way of a direct message, in my humble oh, it's opinion. A, it's gets, it, it allows them off the hook. It's like, oh, we're going to download this to the district. We're going to make this the district problem. And to an extent, I kind of get that because each district will have different things that they need to consider. Surrey, of course, being the biggest and, you know, a very diverse population. Uh, I, I get that we may need some regional differences, um, but right now, I think going back in the province is, is I think Dr. Bonnie Hedry said the other day that this is a provincial thing. We're seeing it fairly consistent across the province. Then, yeah, we need to do that as a province. 
Good afternoon. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And thank you for sharing this part of your afternoon with us. Now, the headline reads, just one of the headlines on this topic, homeless people left to fend for themselves amid extreme cold warnings, advocates say. And the story goes on to talk about in areas including downtown Vancouver, right out to Abbotsford in the Fraser Valley, the homeless are not being seen into uh, shelters as much as one would expect. And in fact, one uh, one pastor uh, actually came out and said um, that uh, we're simply not keeping pace. That was uh, Ward Draper, who's a pastor with a five and two ministry, saying we're not keeping pace with the increasing number of people who have to live on the streets. And picking up on this story and uh, expressing her concerns on Twitter, saying it's just not even the tip of the iceberg, is Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne. She's executive director at the First United Community Ministry Society on the downtown east side. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I know this is uh, very close to your heart and you've been doing a lot of good work with this. But let me pick up on what you expressed Um that's kind of a shot right at the uh, different levels of government, isn't it? Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I suppose it is. And I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the charitable organizations and the nonprofit housing societies and and shelters that are operational year-round are really doing the best that we can in order to respond to homelessness more generally. But we really have a critical failure of um, all of the systems that are supposed to protect our most vulnerable. Um, in the city of Vancouver, um, the last time I checked, there was about a 700-bed uh, permanent shelter shortage. And so we're always going to have at least you know, 700 to 1,000 uh, people who don't have access to shelters, even if they want to be in one. Um, and then you add um, people who normally uh, might choose not to even try and get into a shelter who, of course, want to survive um, a night like tonight where the wind chill could be up to like minus 12 or minus 16, um, they're going to come in to try and survive, but there's really nowhere for them to go. Uh, we've done our, our best at First United. You know, our building was built in 1965. It's far beyond its useful life. We've closed the second floor of the building and, and nobody really works up there anymore. We're getting ready to redevelop this property, but we've still opened our dining hall to um, an additional 20 men to get them off the street because that's the that's the most extra that we can do. Um, and we're grateful to partner with the city of Vancouver on that. But it's, it's a pretty dire situation. We see news releases often coming out at both the city levels or cities level and, uh, and the provincial government and uh, sometimes even federal help talking about how they're working to really solve this issue. And uh, it's a top priority for them. In fact, every level of government keeps on saying that this is their priority. Um, Certainly not the case in what you've been seeing, is it? I think it just, there's so many intersections of different failures of supports, right? So um, the federal government and the provincial government are doing what they can, which is not adequate, in my view, uh, to try and address the housing affordability crisis. Um, And that's become a very polarized issue. Um, You know, I saw somebody on Twitter comment last night, oh, sure, this is just, you know, we're going to give more free housing to drug addicts. Um, You know, there's there's, uh, issues around poverty reduction that need to come into the conversation on this. The fact that uh, CERB was deemed to be about 80% of what 
an individual needed in order to survive if they were to be unemployed due to COVID. Um, you know, that's 80% of the survival rate that the government deemed, but it's still almost triple what people on income assistance are expected to live on. We have to really take seriously poverty reduction in this country, um, especially in Vancouver, where we have some of the most expensive housing costs for both rental housing and obviously in the um, in the strata market and the single family home market that, you know, it's, there's virtually nowhere in North America that has um, similar housing prices to us, with the exception of maybe Toronto, New York and San Francisco. So um, it, it's not just about shelters and, and homelessness. Um, there's the lack of mental health supports and um, uh, supports for people dealing with addictions and alcoholism. Um, and certainly there's a, a real lack of support if you have mental illness and are suffering from uh, addiction or mental or and alcoholism. Um, and, you know, there, there's just so many different lacks of supports that result in people ending up on the street and it can't be a one size all one size fits all solution. So you see this intersection of multiple issues coming together and it is a challenge. Homelessness is not just providing homes, it's providing support and programs. I hear what you're saying there. But tell us a little bit about the changing face of homelessness, the new homelessness, what you're seeing with uh, people that may have gone through a different stage of even uh, living during the past couple of years, which have uh, been really more of a challenge, I would argue, than ever before. Is this something that's contributing to uh, to the more vulnerable? Um, I think... It's been a little bit of the status quo for us. I I think the one big impact of COVID, besides, of course, most of the public health guidelines, especially early on in the pandemic, were really geared towards people who were housed, um, who had access to clean uh, water and soap and bathroom facilities and the ability to physically distance. If you're living in a dorm shelter, you don't have the ability to self-isolate if you're having any kind of symptoms. Some people decided to move out of the shelters because they felt safer living outside than they did living in the shelters. So, um, I, and I would say like a, a large number of the shelters are still not operating at 100% capacity because we're not built to be able to offer physical distancing within our physical operations. And so, um, you know, as things reduced by attrition, we never really went back up to 100% because we're trying to keep people safe from COVID. Um Another impact on people on the street was um, there was a lot of predatory behavior, people telling um, people who are already on income assistance that they could also sign up for CERB. And, you know, we've heard the prime minister say repeatedly that people who took advantage of CERB were going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the CRA's ability. And so we're now seeing people who are losing their ability to collect income assistance or things like that because maybe um, a drug dealer signed them up for CERB so that they could have like extra access to money for drugs. And then the drug dealer took a you know percentage of that. Things like that were happening. So people are in a worse financial situation this year than they were previously. And then um, there's just a real shortage of safe places for people to sleep. Just a horrible situation. And hearing those stories, it just tugs at the heart. Carmen Lansdowne is executive director with First United on the downtown east side. Uh, Carmen, I know that there are some... Big plans for First United uh, coming up, and uh, you're undergoing a change. You talked about the facility that was built in the past, but that was the past. That was then. This is now. What's going on, and uh, what can we look forward to? 
Yeah, so if you've driven out East Hastings Street and you see our iconic roof line with this sort of angular mirroring the mountains at the corner of Hastings and Gore, this building was built in 1965. It was designed for congregational worship, and we've really been designing our programs uh, around the building and not the other way around. We're really fortunate that in 2022, we're going to break ground on a redevelopment of this property. We will build a new um, community facility that uh, operates the church's um, social service programs, our legal advocacy clinic. Uh, there'll be a worship sanctuary, a uh, place for spiritual care. But of course, we'll maintain our um, low barrier, like no religious participation approach that we've had for decades. And then above the four floors of church space, there will be seven floors of uh, non-market Indigenous urban housing. And um, we're really excited uh, to get going on the construction of that. So demolitions uh, slated to happen in the second quarter of 2022. And um, we can't wait to add another uh, over 100 units of permanent affordable housing in the city. Start date for construction then, not demolition, but the actual start date that you're guessing at this point? Um, it'll probably be sometime summer 2022. We have a lot of lead and asbestos and things like that. So demolition will take um, probably a couple of months for them to be able to safely take this building down. Uh, but we're, we're hoping to start demolition in late April, early May. And if people are interested in seeing what that's going to look like, I know on your website, you've got uh, amazing pictures. What is that website for people? Firstunited.ca. Firstunited.ca. And of course, um, you're also looking for some support, I would imagine, from people that are interested. Absolutely. Uh, so on our donate page, uh, you can go to firstforward.ca if you want to make a donation to the building. But of course, we look always for uh, donations to our regular operations. We are a registered charity uh, doing really good work in the downtown east side. And I will just add that we have a triple match on from today until uh, December, midnight, December 31st um, to try and bring us to our year end goal. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. Hope you're staying safe if you're out on the roads driving around. Next hour, we'll take a look at uh, some safety tips with BCAA. But first, talk about Groundhog Day. The Canada Pension Plan and your contributions to it going up once again. It's the latest increase that happens at this time of year. It started back in 2019 after our federal government and the provinces agreed to start increasing this more to get the public system into shape. Uh, how much more? Well, $3,500 is going to be the increase for 2022. That's the maximum employer and employee. But if you're self-employed, it could be a maximum of just under, yeah, I like this, the number they use is the maximum amount will be $6,999, not $7,000, $6,999. But that is the maximum for self-employed contributions, the part that you have to pick up yourself, which is all of it, if you're self-employed, $7,000 starting in the new year. That's for the public system. Talking about our financial planning and taking a look at everything for those retirement years is Peter Sashaki, registered financial planner and president of Everything Financial. Thanks for coming on with us, Peter. And um, boy, that's a bit of a shock for the public system, isn't it? It is. It's, uh, it's, it's a tax, Bruce. I mean, it's really what it is. It's a tax. And you know, you talk about these numbers, an increase from 3166, um, you know, this year in 2021 to 3499. And, and people say, well, it's, you know, it's 
it's not that big. Well, then there's that's the employer portion. So think of all those small businesses that you know employ five, six, seven, or twenty people. They have to pay that increase per employee, and then the employees paying their increase, and it's just a whole lot of money going back into the federal government's pockets under the real, you know, it's CPP increase to keep it up to pace. Well, why do they have to keep CPP up to pace so much? What's been going wrong that they're hitting us with these huge increases? And, and um, you got to look deep into this because there's a lot of little different factors that are going up. It's not just that premium. There's lots of other stuff too. It's a bit of a hard, uh, a hard blow when you start to draw out the CPP on the other side, especially if you're living in a fairly expensive city like Vancouver. Um, you're not getting what you might really uh, expect would be a livable salary for most, right? That's right. I mean, you can't if you if you do your financial planning and you think you're going to live on CPP, and and even if you're at the max, let's just say you've contributed the maximum all these years because of your income was over you know the sixty thousand dollar range. That's going up too, by the way. Um, and then you have old age security. Well, that's that's a healthier retirement. But let's be honest, Bruce. It's it's not the retirement. You're going to have to do a lot of other planning over and above CPP and then old age security when that kicks in at sixty five just to be able to survive. And yes, you're right, in a city like Vancouver or the Lower Mainland, but I think just about anywhere in Canada you're going to need, you know, a lot. Because remember, there's this thing out there we haven't talked about much or they don't like to talk about called inflation. These increases aren't going to allow people to keep pace with inflation. I mean, inflation is, we, we could see some huge numbers in the coming year with all the money that's been spent and, you know, CPP is not going to be enough. And they're certainly not indexed like other pension plans might be. So that takes us to some other sort of financial planning. And uh, without getting into too much of a shameless plug, what are uh, financial? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, got to put that in there. But That's there is a component. Come on, <laughs> there is this component, Peter, where uh, people do have to uh, take a little bit of responsibility themselves, and I think even the government has recognized that. Um, so, what uh, what are we looking at for people that are uh, looking to retire? And let's take examples of two different age categories, uh, people that are brand new to the workforce, maybe in their 20s, and maybe people uh, like like myself in the mid-50s uh, staring down retirement in 10 years. Yeah, it's you've got to start your planning. The earlier you start, obviously, the less you need to put in. And there's vehicles out there. There's Well, there's really potentially three vehicles. We have the tax-free savings account which people should look at that as more of a long-term savings account, not the short-term get a, you know, a tenth of a point interest because how much tax are you really saving if you're only earning a tenth of a point interest? Really nothing. So look at, look at, talk to your registered financial planner. The younger you are, the better you are. You don't need a certain amount of money. Start with anything, 50 bucks, 25 bucks, whatever it is to start putting money away. But you do have to pay yourself and look after yourself first with tax-free savings account, RSPs when they're appropriate, which is based on how much money you earn, really. You don't buy RSPs just for the sake of buying RSPs. you got to make sure there's a tax component where you're actually going to save money. And then, of course, uh, which people a lot of times miss out on, Bruce, is your own company RSP or pension plans. And the biggest one people don't always notice is, because it's another deduction off your paycheck, right, is they have a company RSP plan where the company may match. So you put in 1000 they put in 500 or they put in 1000 
I encourage people, new workers, older workers, and you know, wherever you are, if there's a plan like that in your company, don't even worry about the amounts. Take as take advantage of much as you can. Whatever the company says they're going to match, take advantage of it and figure out the money later. Because just think about it. If it's a thousand for you and they're putting in a thousand, they're willing to do it. You've just doubled your money, no matter how you invest it. And Peter, That's I'm thinking of two that. different matching plans, and I've seen both in uh, in my career. Um, one is matching in terms of uh, RRSPs with your employer, and the Absolutely. other is uh, uh, an employee share matching program. Um, they operate differently. Any advice and differences between the two of those? There, there are differences with the employee share on the, in the sense that you're not really getting a deduction. It, it will when you have a pension plan with that employee share, you will get you will be allowed less RSPs later on through the year. But that's okay because if the employer is willing to match and give you money that you put in and match to it, it's okay. It goes in, it earns money because it all comes out in the end. You pay tax when you take it out. So if you're in a sizable tax bracket, let's just say anything over 38%, you plan to get a good tax savings on these dollars you put away and tax deferred growth, not tax free. You're deferring the tax for a later day. But then maybe you plan properly and you take that money out when you're in a 20 or a 22% tax bracket and do income splitting with your spouse. That's good money. That's where you got to look at these plans, Bruce, is how much tax am I saving? Don't worry so much about what you're going to earn. Tax is the main component with these plans. That's where you're going to really make the money. Tax first, investment return second. Peter Sushaki, registered financial planner, president of Everything Financial. Just before we let you go, want to uh, pick up on one thing, and that's uh, the calendar. We take a look at the end of the year or approaching the end of the year. That's one time that uh, people take a look at their finances. The other is tax season, not too far away. Should this be the times of year for looking at this, or is it a all-year process? All-year process, definitely. I mean, this is something... And you've heard me say this, and all the listeners have heard me say this, there's no such thing as RSP season. That's an artificially created item to prop up people that sometimes spend more money than they need to. Plan early so you're not caught off guard and putting in more money than you really need to based on a proper plan. doesn't mean don't do RSPs. Plan for it. The earlier you start your planning, the better you plan for it. You do the appropriate amount. There's no surprise. And February 28th, 29th, when we have a 29th, March 1st, is just another day on the calendar. It's not this panic-driven day where I have to throw every dime I can and every dime I can beg, borrow, and steal into an RSP. And Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. You know, whether they live independently or are in long-term care homes, some of the people who are, are elderly are not having a great time this time of year. And uh, that's especially true when it comes to dealing with these cold winter conditions and then, of course, COVID-19 and the latest uh, spread of Omicron. Uh, We've seen some cancellations of visits in long-term care homes back east. Not necessarily the case in B.C., but how are long-term care homes dealing with that part of it That's uh, the COVID-19 question. Terry Lake is with the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Long-term care homes, what is our current situation right now for those wanting to visit relatives? Well, thanks for having me on, Bruce. And I would say the situation in long-term care and assisted living is 
can be described as uh, hanging by a thread when it comes to staffing. Uh, you know, you heard on your news about uh, staffing issues with airlines, and uh, nowhere is it more critical than in long-term care assisted living where um, we see a number of uh, staff that are either testing positive or uh, not feeling well and staying home, which, of course, is the right thing to do, but it leaves an already challenged uh, challenge staffing system uh, fully, fully stretched. We have some homes that are operating uh, with maybe 75% of the very base level of staffing. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's we're keeping our fingers crossed. We have this uh, one home in Kamloops over the Christmas weekend that was in a critical situation. Everyone pulled together, uh, other care homes, uh, other health authorities, Fraser Health sent some nurses out, care aides as well. And so, you know, that's what we're getting down to is uh, is kind of plugging uh, the worst case scenarios as we go along here and, and keeping our fingers uh, firmly crossed. For the uninitiated and unfamiliar, what was the situation with the Kamloops care home that you're talking about? Well, they were down to very few nurses uh, and a significant drop in care aids over the Christmas weekend. Uh, so, you know, we had to mobilize with Interior Health uh, uh, to the highest levels. And I must say they responded really, really well. Uh, you know, uh, we were talking to the Deputy Minister of Health, who spent half of his Boxing Day, I think, uh, working on the on the situation, and people pulled together, and, and we got through it. But, you know, even leading into COVID-19, Bruce, uh, we've been talking about a, a health human resource uh, crisis in the long-term care sector. Some of that has been addressed with the uh, health uh, career access program that the government has, has instituted, but we are still really, really low in nurses. There's so many vacancies around the province. And we're mandated to have a, a registered nurse on site 24-7. And there are times when that is absolutely impossible to do because uh, we just cannot get nurses there uh, in, in terrific demand in the acute care sector, uh, vaccination clinics, and, um, and you know, more and more are, are retiring rather than work under the you know, the crushing pressure that they've been under for the last two years. Terry Lake is with the BC Care Providers Association, the CEO. Terry, um, it sounds like there's no backbench whatsoever. If you take somebody out, it's going to be a case of who's going to take care of the minimum requirements in a long-term care home. Uh, That was almost the situation beforehand. Now we've got Omicron, a whole different level of this. What's the solution? Is there a solution? Well, it's a little better than the first wave. If you think about what happened, especially in Ontario and Quebec, uh, where the, that situation was, was very desperate, uh, we had people just not being cared for, and that you know the Army and Red Cross had to go in. Uh, we're really fortunate that all residents of long-term care have had their third uh, booster. Um, you know, Thanks to pressure put on by the sector and the opposition, the government, to their credit, listened and uh, rolled that out more quickly than they had planned. Without that, I think we'd be in a, a terrible situation. But back in 2016, Bruce, um, you know, we did a, there was a report done by the Ministry of Health that looked at the needs of long-term care over the next, you know, 10-year period. Uh, and it looked at, you know, the number of new uh, care aides, nurses that we would need. But unfortunately, precious little has been done to increase spaces around the province, increase training uh, until this, this HCAP program, Health Career Access Program, that came on stream last year. 
So, and this is not unusual or, or, or it's not different from other places in Canada. I think as a country, we've ignored uh, the aging demographic in terms of the healthcare needs of that uh, age group that's coming uh, through the boomer years uh, into needing more care as, the, as boomers age. So we simply have to recruit more nurses, train more nurses. Uh, we have to have immigration pathways that are easier for nurses. We have to go overseas and, and look for opportunities to bring nurses to Canada. Uh, without that, we are going to be in a severe uh, human resources crisis not just in long-term care, but in acute care as well. Is the problem the pay, or is it the work conditions, or a combination of the both? Well, I think it's a combination of, of a, a number of things. Um, you know, for care aides, uh, the pay uh, before the wage leveling at times wasn't what it should be. That's been uh, sorted out. Government has invested a lot of money to bring wages up, which is a good thing. Uh, but the working conditions are generally, you know, uh, very good. Uh, people talk about how how rewarding this career is. You, you, you can just, when you talk to care aides working in long-term care, and they talk about the people for whom they care, they are passionate. And um, so uh, I don't think it's that, but it's just that we really haven't uh, come to terms with the aging demographic and the needs of that aging demographic in Canada. We've looked at, you know, trades and technology and and things like that as, as sectors that you know we needed to to uh, recruit to, and we forgot about the needs of this uh, this demographic that's coming at us quickly. So it's uh, an oversight in many ways in provinces across Canada, uh, it, you know. But there's no excuse for for not seeing it coming. It's it's sort of like climate change. We all know it's coming, but we don't take the actions needed today uh, to make a difference uh, to the situation and the challenge ahead of us. Terry Lake uh, with the BC Care Providers Association. Terry, I must say that uh, I do have a mother who is in long-term care living with dementia in White Rock. And when I go in and see the facility and what they're dealing with, I just have so much admiration for uh, from management right down to staff members. And uh, they're just incredible. They have a lot of fortitude in, uh, in just dealing with uh, very difficult conditions. What do you see for the year ahead for the system? Do you see any big changes? 2022, what's it going to look like? Well, firstly, Bruce, thanks for recognizing that because people that are in long-term care, whether they're owners, managers, uh, nurses, care aides, are absolutely dedicated and I think do a great job here in the province of British Columbia. But I think, you know, we can't let any crisis uh, go without seizing the opportunity that crisis creates. And so we've seen the the weaknesses in the system with COVID-19. So we, as I said, we've got some programs like the Care Aid program that's been ramped up. We need more licensed practical nurses, more registered nurses. And we need to um, do away with this sort of ageist kind of uh, bias that we have in in dealing with seniors care. When nurses go through nursing school, they're often told um, not to go straight into seniors care, to go into, you know, general 
uh, care in the, in the wards and in the emergency room and, and operating room to get all that experience, when uh, many of them uh, really would thrive uh, in seniors' care for their whole careers. It's, it is a very rewarding career. You can make such a difference, not just in the lives of the resident, but in the lives of their families as well, as you know so well, and, and I certainly have experienced as well. And a very good afternoon to you. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett. And just before the break, we're talking about bus service being out for the time being because of a flood situation at the waterfront station and just got word from TransLink's Tina Lovegreen that the bus bridge actually does go over the Lionsgate Bridge, so still a bit of a trip and a trek to get around that. But there is a bus uh, bus bridge in place for those that rely on sea bus service this afternoon. Waterfront Station itself is in operation for those taking the Canada Line and for those taking SkyTrain. But for those that rely on CBUS, that's a no-go for right now. No estimation on when things will be back to normal. But a flood there at the waterfront station has taken the CBUS out of service, at least for now. Talking about travel adventures and some of the challenges on the roads for people like myself coming into work this morning, driving in winter conditions, and I would describe myself as a fairly experienced driver. I've lived in the Caribou, lived in Quinnell for a short time, skied most of my life, and uh, have been over snowy conditions many, many times. And I do have good tires on the car, but even I found that it was a little bit tricky at times. And uh, coming in this morning, boy, it, uh, it was a white-knuckle adventure talking about some of the things that we experience uh, with driving in these winter conditions. And yes, it is better right now, but more of these conditions are going to come up over the weekend. We still have a little bit of snow in the forecast before it turns to rain. So we've got BCAA's Josh Smythe. He's an automotive expert. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, it really is a different system when it comes to knowing how to drive in winter conditions, isn't it? It certainly is a completely different experience for sure. And what sort of advice do you give, just top down before we break this down into more precise conditions, but for those that uh, wake up in the morning and know that uh, the roads are covered with snow, and even if they do have snow tires, what do they have to keep in mind? Well, you know, even with the right snow tires, slippery is still slippery. And, uh, you know, this this creates the need for everybody to slow down and drive for the conditions. So right off the top of my head, the first thing I could think of would be to suggest maybe making sure you leave a little bit of extra time to, to make an adjustment for this time gap and, and the delays that are going to be inevitable in your travels. Now, we talk about winter tires, and uh, some people talk about, well, I'm going to take the SUV so I don't have to worry about uh, anything. I've got uh, all-wheel drive. Some people with actual four-wheel drives, like Jeeps, they say, I don't have to worry about it at all. Is that the experience with BCAA? Do you only see the uh, small cars like my own uh, little 2020 Accent uh, that end up in trouble? No, unfortunately, we see all kinds of makes and models in trouble, all four-wheel drives, all-wheel drives, everything that you can think of across the board, all have uh, complications in, in this kind of weather. When it comes to all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive, yes, it helps 
you know, move the vehicle that helps in, in the terms of it drive. Um, you know, it aids in turning and stuff like this. But, you know, again, slippery is still slippery. And when it comes to stopping, uh, it doesn't matter if you have all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive, six-wheel drive. Slippery is slippery, and, it, you know, it, it is difficult to stop. So what do you do? Do you simply avoid uh, car trips uh, even if you have these, or do you just uh, use a little bit more skill? What's your advice? Well, you know, my, my advice would be is if, um, you know, if, if you don't have the skill set or you don't have the experience to drive in it and you don't need to, I recommend you don't. You know, stay home, stay safe, stay warm, um, you know, and, and leave, leave the driving to the people that need to be on the road. Now, if, if you do have to be on the road and, um, you know, you, you find yourself in this situation, again, it's, it's, it's all about proper, proper speed, driving for the conditions, not overestimating your vehicle's ability or your confidence in your ability to drive. Um, you know, a combination of the two, the vehicle's ability and, and our ability and knowledge of driving in the snow is usually the combination that gets us into a little bit of trouble. We're talking with Josh Smythe. He's a BCAA automotive expert about winter driving conditions and some of the things that we're experiencing, like myself this morning coming in from the Cloverdale area into downtown Vancouver. It was a white knuckler. I must say, Josh, uh, my usual commute uh, for this type of thing during a slow week like this week would be about uh, 45 minutes. I left mm-hmm. at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't get in until a quarter to 9, maybe 10 to mm-hmm. 9. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that was not uh, for any choice of my own. That's what traffic was doing. And no, I didn't come across any accidents, but I did come across some vehicles that were spun out at the side. And you got mm-hmm. a feel for them. Yeah, absolutely. Josh, uh, what does BCAA deal with in terms of volume call? on days like today do you have any idea well you know i'll give you a good idea of what we deal with you know when it, when it comes to extreme weathers uh you know be it extreme hot in the summertime or, or this kind of stuff in the wintertime we always do see a spike in calls uh we deal with thousands of calls a day you know especially when the first first drop comes i'm just looking at some details here it looks like we responded to approximately three thousand calls on monday alone so, I mean, with that being said, I do want to send a big thank you out to the members who are being so kind and understanding at times when it takes a little bit longer to get to them. You know, we, we, did, we have had over double the usual amount of calls in the last few days, although it does look like today, of all days, it is getting back to a, a typical level. Um, but, we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of dead batteries and frozen locks. So we're trying to prioritize and, and help the people that are stranded in their vehicles uh, a little bit uh, quicker in regards to, you know, making sure that they can get somewhere safe and warm quicker. So, you know, I, I, again, a quick thank you for everybody that is expressing their, their patience in regards to, you know, extended wait times for us to assist. And Josh, we'll pick up on that in a moment and we'll take some calls at 604-280-9898, 9898 and star 9898. Um, Josh, you know, when you head out in the car, uh, sometimes you're just thinking about getting from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. If you end up um, in one of these conditions uh, where the car is just not going to go any further, you're off to the side of the road, what's the advice? Do you stay in the car? Do you get out and try to push it? 
Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. Pushing in this kind of weather, and if, if, if your vehicle's stuck, there's a good chance you just pushing it on your own isn't going to do you any good. Uh, you know, at this point, uh, I, I would recommend uh, calling for assistance. Um, you know, in regards to staying in your car, uh, safety is what I need you to keep your in, in, in the forefront of your mind. If you're on a, on a back street or a side road and, and, you know, there's not a lot of traffic going by, by all means, uh, you know, find yourself somewhere warm that you can stay until, you know, some assistance can arrive. But if, if, if you know, you're on a dark road or a highway, there is quite a bit of traffic and you feel that the safest spot for you to be is inside your vehicle, that would be potentially the best spot for you instead of exposing yourself to potential uh, issues outside of the vehicle. Okay. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. We're talking about driving in some winter conditions. Got to say the scariest moment for me this morning was just after I left my place going down Fraser Highway and right at a bus stop seeing two pedestrians. Now it's still dark out. It's before just before seven o'clock. Two pedestrians going to the bus stop decide that because the sidewalk is covered in snow that they're going to go out into the tire tracks on Fraser Highway and start walking along there to the bus stop. So it's not just about driving, it's keeping your eyes open. We'd love to hear some of your experiences and stories. We do have Josh Smythe, BCAA automotive expert, on with us. And we have uh, going to our lines, you can give us a phone call. 280-9898 280-9898 or star 9898. Ellen is in Campbell River. Ellen, uh, what have you experienced? Well, um, the point you made about all-wheel drives and four-wheel drives, I have a lifted pickup with 35-inch tires. So going in the snow up to three feet, I don't even worry about. But I cannot stop or turn any better than any other vehicle. And if people would realize that who have all-wheel drives and four-wheel drives, I think it would be a lot, lot safer out there. Absolutely. Josh, uh, that echoes uh, what you're saying uh, and have said before. Is it a false sense of confidence, Josh, when we start to see people uh, driving around in vehicles that are kind of advertised as uh, being able to tackle more of the winter driving conditions? Yeah, I mean, a false sense of confidence or maybe just uh, an unrealistic sense of the ability of the vehicle. Uh, you know, it, it boils down to the idea, you know, like the caller just mentioned, it moves great when you step on the gas. It looks like there's no problem. I, you know, you can trudge through it, but when it comes to, you know, making it stop, that's 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 where, it, you know, the tires meet the road, if you will, and, and it really proves, you know, what the snow is capable of doing in regards to removing abilities and capabilities of the vehicle. Alan, what kind of uh, vehicle do you have? Oh, I have a half-ton Chevy lifted six inches with 35-inch tires on it. Mm, that's a big one. <laughs> okay. And you say that uh, with a big, deep voice. Um, and do you think that uh, that's enough for the snow for you, or do you find that even with that, you have to uh, watch yourself a little bit more? Well, going uh, up to three feet of snow, I don't even really think about it. I know it'll go. But, like I said, coming to a stop, coming down a hill, turning, trying to maneuver out of the way of people sliding through stop signs, I can't maneuver any any better than any other vehicle. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. fair enough. And really good advice. Thank you, Alan. Um, and that's something that uh, really strikes home. It's the maneuverability. And that really doesn't matter, does it, Josh, uh, what kind of vehicle you're in? No, it, it doesn't matter. And that's, you know, maneuverability boils down to control. And the control is all coming from the ability to stick to the road, which just screams, make sure you have the right tires for the right conditions. Winter tires are so important when it comes to snow. I hear people talking about uh, those who live in the Vancouver area being the worst drivers. And if you go into the BC interior, maybe they have a little bit more experience with uh, snow. And the Mm -hmm. only people, uh, the joke is the only people that have troubles in the interior are those from the lower mainland that go up there. Um, That's right. Oh, it is correct. It's not just a myth. No, no, no. Unfortunately, I'm one of the ones that live in the lower mainland. And, you know, to, to give credit to the people down here, uh, unfortunately, it boils down to the experience. You know, we, we all learn uh, by doing things. And unfortunately, we don't have the extreme snow that we get down here or sorry, that the interior gets. Uh, so we don't have the constant, uh, you know, classic winter experience where we have months on an, you know, from month to month dealing with the same kind of slipperiness and the same kind of weather. We can usually only get a couple of weeks during the year. So, you know, for the lack of a better phrase, you can throw a large slurpee on the road in the summer and people will panic in the lower mainland. Oh, true. It's all about confidence, isn't it? Bob in Surrey, what kind of driver are you in this? Um, I'm a uh, very cautious driver. I have a Class 1 license. And ever since I took my Class 1, I've actually become a more cautious driver. So, interestingly, last night I was driving home around 1 o'clock and uh, I could see that there was a big pickup truck that was gaining on me. And anyways, I ended up following him, and uh, he took a corner too fast and went into a uh, gas station uh, parking lot and almost took out a gas pump. So uh, I took the corner at a reasonable speed and uh, went past him in my little tiny car with all all weather tires. So... You know, these guys that have fancy cars, you know, they think that they're, uh, you know, they give them way too much confidence, but you can't defy the laws of physics. When you try to stop or you try to turn a corner too fast, the grip on the road is what's going to determine what happens, right? I don't care how good you are. If you don't, uh, if you go too fast, uh, you're going to be in trouble. That's the bottom line. It sure is, Bob, and uh, thank you very much for that. Um, it comes back to what I've observed driving around Surrey too myself. Uh, some people really have overconfidence when it comes to the roads. And I see this in terrible driving conditions, even if it's not snow uh, with a heavy rain late at night. I've been past uh, going the speed limit myself and somebody passing me like I'm just stopped. Uh, mm-hmm. So advice for that, uh, Josh? Again, you know, adjust your driving speed and, and you know, to all the conditions that, that, that are, are facing you. you. When it's nighttime, we turn our lights on. You know, that's, that's you know, it sounds painfully obvious, but that's the, in order to see things. Um, you know, so when the snow comes, um, much like, you know, turning the lights on, we have to get off the gas pedal. We, we need to drive to those conditions and, and adjust accordingly. To the caller's credit, he, he nailed the, the point when he said he took the corner at a slower speed. This, this is key to it, driving for the condition and you know, making sure that you're not overdriving the ability of the vehicle for the conditions you're in.